Welcome to the Community Safety Web Podcast, where we talk about creating safe communities through collaboration between the police, private security, criminologists, and the public to develop and evaluate evidence-based policy to guide safety decisions. The Community Safety Web Podcast is brought to you by the Policing, Security, Technology, and Private Security Research Policy Institute and is co-hosted by Brian Stevens and Daryl Stevens. Hello, and thank you for joining us for episode three of the Community Safety Web Podcast, where we'll be discussing translational criminology. Today, we are very excited to have Dr. Tom Blomberg join us for our discussion. Dr. Blomberg is the Dean of the Florida State University College of Criminology and Criminal Justice. He's been a national leader in the field of criminology and a longtime advocate of translational criminology, which we'll discuss today. In fact, the college's brand, which is research brought to life, embodies a vision of striving to provide cutting edge research and teaching that ultimately contributes to improving society. In recent years, he's begun to focus more on the impact of politics on the adoption of evidence-based policy and practice. First, a little background on Dr. Blomberg and we could spend the entirety of the podcast talking about his achievements and experience, so I'll try and keep it brief. Dr. Blomberg has served as the dean of the college since 2003. He came to Florida State as an assistant professor in 1973 after he earned his PhD in criminology at the University of California at Berkeley, a program whose graduates have had an enormous impact on criminal justice for many years. Dr. Blomberg was named one of the most influential criminologists for 2010 through 2020, and has earned numerous teaching awards for his commitment to student success. He has served as the editor of Criminology and Public Policy from 2007 to 2013. He leads a college whose graduate program has been ranked in the top 10 in the country for academic reputation by US News and World Report consistently. And the online bachelor and master's degree programs have been in the top five for the past five years. Over his almost 50 years of service at Florida State, he has touched and influenced the lives of literally thousands of students. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Tom, you've had an illustrious career spanning almost 50 years at Florida State University. You received your bachelor's, master's, and doctor's degree from the University of California at Berkeley, a highly regarded school. It's a school also that's produced a number of noted criminologists that's had impact on policing and the criminal justice system for the last 40 or 50 years. Can you tell us why you chose? criminology for your life's work? Uh, It takes me back uh, a ways, but it's like yesterday, actually. I started out at Berkeley in civil engineering. I was very interested in concrete. Uh, My dad was a builder. I grew up around construction, and it was just a natural kind of move for me, and Berkeley had a wonderful civil engineering program. However, like many young people uh, during the uh, early 70s, I was uh, very much influenced by the events going around uh, with regard to the civil rights movement and the war in Vietnam. There was a point that I made up my mind that I wanted to understand what was going on in our society more. And so I decided that I would mix my civil engineering with some courses on that other side of campus known as the South Side of Campus, where I was able to take a sociology course. It was that just sort of experimentation with that sociology course 
that led me to change my major to sociology at Berkeley and then to write a senior honors thesis on prisons. And I think the experience with the senior honors uh, thesis was what really turned my sort of total commitment toward criminology. I was still going to go to law school when I graduated. I was accepted to law school. I was within weeks of uh, uh, entering law school. And again, uh, serendipity, I had the nerve to stop in and uh, just pay a visit to the then dean of the School of Criminology at Berkeley, Professor Bernard Diamond. And Bernard Diamond was a psychiatrist. Uh, he taught at the law school. He was dean of criminology, and he held a professorship at the medical school. And he's famous for the theory of diminished capacity. A very prestigious, very accomplished individual. And I still remember his secretary said, do you have an appointment, sir? And I said, well, actually, I don't. <laughs> and, uh, well, I'll see if he'll talk to you. And so it was that interaction. He checked my credentials. And he made an exception. He admitted me about 10 days before classes were to begin and, you know, tried to convince me that I should take a pause and not just make sure I kept my admission to law school open at Berkeley. But I decided I was committed to criminology. And that was the decision. And I, I never, ever looked back. I've never regretted that decision. I just feel so, so happy that my career path did move in this direction. I'd like to tell you it was all by design, but it was serendipity. Well, uh, a lot of people have, are very fortunate for having you having made that decision and made this your life's career. Tom, you were named one of the most influential criminologists by academic influence for the period from 2010 to 2020. Here's the thing, though. In addition to yourself, two others on the list are professors at Florida State. And two additional people on the list were PhD grads from Florida State. So out of the 25 most influential criminologists in this academic influence list, 20% of them are from Florida State University. How's that make you feel about your work? Oh, it, it's just such a wonderful honor. And it just speaks so well of the faculty here, but also these wonderful students. As you know, uh, uh, Daryl, and you know, Brian, to have the opportunity to work with students. It's an honor. And, and then to have some small little degree of influence that's going to help make a better world. You know, the occupation, the profession, the dream of a lifetime for me. And then to see these types of results, uh, I'm humbled by them. Tom, I've got a, a couple of questions for you as well. Um, we wanted to talk a bit about translational criminology. Uh, that's something that that you speak about frequently and, matter of fact, have a, a class that is dedicated to translational criminology. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and, and why it's so important? My biography, my, you know, educational biography, beginning with civil engineering, the whole idea of criminology as an applied discipline was always something close to my heart. When I did my senior honors thesis on prisons, I was struck by the fact that we continue to cling to prisons despite the fact that they are inhumane, they are ineffective, and they're costly. And I don't mean that we could just abolish prisons altogether. But as you know, during the 80s, we relied on prisons more than any place in the world, mass incarceration. So I was always struck by coming from that kind of engineering background 
the kind of effectiveness, policy, application, science should have a role in combating crime. And my first graduate class at Berkeley was taught by Shelley Messenger, and he was known to be a no-nonsense person. If you submitted a term paper and he did not feel that that term paper met certain standards, you would be called in the office. Uh, he was also the dean. Uh, uh, Bernard Diamond actually stepped down that fall and Shelley Messenger became the dean. And it was known that he would ask, basically uh, ask people to leave the program, indicating to them you have no chance of succeeding. So it was a little scary you know, experience being in his class. And I remember he comes in to this class. There was about 12 of us sitting around a table. And he says that, listen, I assume each of you are here because you think you're going to make an original, empirical, theoretical contribution to academic criminology. But I'm here to tell you, if that empirical, theoretical contribution does not have something to do with reducing the misery and suffering of crime, you need to hit the sidewalk. And that resonated with me. And, you know, this was at Berkeley, right? And this was Messenger who influenced the likes of Jerry Stolnick and Philip Selznick and David Matza, Irving Goffman, all these giants in the field. But he clearly had that belief that we need to do outstanding research, but we need to translate it. So this became part of my thinking, part of my reason for pursuing criminology. The reason I came to Florida State, I had an offer at Harvard at the law school. There was a big read assignment, had this big, and you might remember this, Daryl, she had this big criminal justice research initiative. I had an offer at UC Riverside, and I had an offer at Berkeley to teach and be the field studies director. But Messenger and Skolnick, given my translational focus, they kept saying, Florida State is in Tallahassee. That's the state capital. You will be able to reach out to those agencies. You'll be able to gather data. You'll be able to make a difference. And that was the fundamental reason for coming to Florida State. We mentioned in the intro that the college's motto is research brought to life. I'm curious if there are any recently completed or in-flight research initiatives that you believe will be particularly impactful. You know, we do have a number of things, and we're actually right now, we're working on several publications. I will have an article. I've been asked to contribute to the annual review of criminology, which is the highest impact journal, you know, in our field. And it, it will reach a lot of people. And I've invited a couple of faculty members, Jennifer Kopp and Jillian Tranovic, to co-author this piece with me. And that's exactly what we plan to do is to look at it, the specific ways that, for example, Jillian's research on uh, mass killings, how that is being translated and disseminated. And she's been doing a phenomenal effort on really looking at over the last 40 years, the various correlates to mass shootings and destroying a lot of myths along the way. And part of that is broad education. Translational is just not necessarily police courts and corrections or victim services, it also means educating legislators, educating the public at large. That is one example. The work that just completed in Maryland and the ongoing work that we're doing with the Florida Department of uh, Juvenile Justice on education and educational achievement. The current secretary, 
he actually was running a program when I had the Jeep project and he loved the Jeep project. He saw how we elevated the quality of educational services and he saw what difference that made in the lives of these delinquents in terms of a positive turning point. In other words, it made a difference and it reduced recidivism. It changed lives. That was another translational effort. Jennifer Kopp has been doing a lot of work on risk assessment in instruments because, again, as we know, there's a lot of racial disparity in the use of bail. So, again, these risk assessment instruments are aimed at reducing those racial disparities. And yet, you don't get those reforms easily. So, we've been working down in Palm Beach now for a series of years, incrementally working with the judges, working with the other stakeholders, developing champions so that Palm Beach County can embrace the whole idea of risk assessments to more equalize the opportunity not to remain in jail pending trial. Those are a couple of things, but the one that I'm probably most involved in right now is the work that we're doing on the financial exploitation of older adults. I just recently gave a presentation in which bank regulators from throughout the United States and Canada that have, in addition to working with the banks, they have community outreach to educate different types of groups on this growing problem of financial exploitation of older adults. We've done a lot of research to show some of the mechanisms, some of the actual human agency mechanisms. What we have is all these correlations in the literature. We correlate uh, financial exploitation with retirement, with residency relocation, with fixed income, with uh, incapacitation of a spouse and suddenly becoming a caregiver or cognitive decline. We do all these correlations that are associated with aging, but not all aging adults fall victim to financial exploitation. So that's the $64,000 question. And our research has been able to show that there are these human agency processes uh, that older adults go through. And some of them, unfortunately, reach a threshold where the way they made decisions previously are no longer the way they make decisions now. And they really don't even care about it because they have bigger issues such as a spouse that just passed away or caregiving or they're in uh, so much pain. And still others that might be 10 years older are still skeptical and making decisions. Their sense of self-efficacy, their sense that I can still I can read this contract. I can just say no remains clear. So we're showing the very important role of human agency and what we do subjectively that ultimately determines victimization or non-victimization. Now, taking that and saying, okay, how do you put that into policy and practice? And that's where now we're moving toward uh, trying to develop some initiatives with ARC and to get a broader sense of data and then getting these messages out to various medical and other professional fields, banking, uh, financial professionals, and so on, so they can recognize some of these cognitive changes that may signal the likelihood of victimization. Yeah, Tom, so many important issues that you raised there, and unfortunately so, uh, especially when we think about uh, mass shooting incidents in the United States is, is far too relevant and far too contemporary especially considering at the time of this recording, we're just coming off another tragic mass shooting event in New York City. So I know a lot in the community and in the industry are, are very much looking forward to the results of, 
of that study. And we look forward to having a specific broadcast dedicated to that topic when the, uh, when the time is right. On the other area that some of the, the research and as well as the, the curriculum has been focused on is the impact of politics on criminology and criminal justice policy. Why the focus on that as well? I think one of the things that we have found here at Florida State University in our efforts to work with legislative bodies, both in Florida, at the federal level, and in various states, we found, again, that there is this belief that if you have the science and the science shows that given this particular crime-related problem, if you take these steps, you can ameliorate many of the conditions associated with that problem. You don't necessarily have the root cause of that problem, but you have seen by various intervention efforts ways to ameliorate a lot of the negative consequences of that problem. You would think that it's possible to take that idea, to take that evidence-based strategy, to present it to those in positions to make the decisions, to implement policies and practices, and then to see those policies get implemented with fidelity or integrity. But unfortunately, far too often, that doesn't happen. The way our our legislation works, the way the process works in Florida and elsewhere, again, while there's all this rhetoric on wanting more evidence-based policies, there's still these ideological dilemmas. I've never seen them in my life more pronounced than they are today. If you look at the far right, you look at the far left, it's hard to tell who's in between. And I don't think it's necessarily going to get better. I think this is something we're going to have to live with. So one of the things that we're committed uh, to here in the College of Criminology, and, and this comes from our work in translational criminology, we believe in order to provide our students with the kind of education that they're going to need to make a difference in society and to pursue various types of careers We can no longer stick to the traditional model of them just acquiring knowledge. They've got to simultaneously learn how to create knowledge and then just as importantly, apply it. So this is where now our translational efforts are going to be translated into the classroom. We are actually getting special teaching space so that our students can watch translational criminology in process, learn what some of the best practices or most promising practices are, learn by our mistakes, and again, become better in terms of change makers. We want to produce change makers. We want our graduates to make a difference. Yeah, that dose of of reality is so important to uh, putting them in a position where they can make a difference and make important contributions. Yeah, and let me me piggyback on that theme, and, and we'll get you out of here on this one. You've had a tremendous history um, in observing the evolution of criminology and the study of criminology and, and criminal justice and are still at the forefront of that in your interaction and your faculty's interaction with, with students um, every day. I think we all recognize and agree that they are the, the future of all these important issues. What are you seeing from those students that gives you confidence in the future of the profession and excites you about uh, things to come in the years to come? Great question. And I will respond frequently around people that are non-criminologists and the discussion of the world, whether it's Ukraine or whether it's the political issues in in D.C. or around the country. And they're always kind of struck by my unfettered 
optimism. And I indicate the following. I have the honor to work with a lot of young people, whether they be freshmen, sophomore, juniors, seniors, master's students, or PhD students. What hits me is that these students at Florida State, Florida State has become a mecca of wonderfully talented young people. And our freshmen come in, they've mastered the classroom. They know how to read books. They know how to retain knowledge. They know how to write essays. They have got it down. I mean, they're 4.0 students or, or better. Can you believe that? Better than a 4.0. But they're not satisfied with that. And what is the common element that I've seen year after year after year, and it's actually growing, and that is they want to make a difference. They care about the world, and they don't just think about money or, or this career or that career. They want to align themselves in something in which they will have a role in making a better world. That motivates me. It makes me work harder with them because I too want them to make such a difference. So I've never quite experienced it the way I experience it now in the sense that these young people, they want opportunities and we are committed. We find some way, for example, let me, Jillian Taranovic, who's doing the work on mass shootings, she has involved about 40 undergraduate and graduate students in the research project. So here they've been able to see how she's creating knowledge and how she's disseminating it. I mean, they've been a part of that. They have been really co-researchers. They've been part of the team. And it's opened up their eyes to vistas that they never would have gotten by merely sitting in a classroom and hearing from it. So, you know, this, this idea about our students today uh, I, I I can only say that it's very, very rosy. It's, I mean, they've got a huge challenge in front of them, but I just believe they're going to be up to that challenge. And I, I'm not a Pollyanna sort of a person. I, I think I'm a realist. But when I see these young people, I see how hard they work. I see how they're able to work together as teams and so on. It just gives me, again, this unbridled optimism. Yeah, I have had the uh, fortune of being able to interact with some of those students that, that you referenced, Tom, and they are just extremely impressive and certainly bodes well for our, our future in the, in the profession and the, in the industry. Well, Tom, thank you so much, first, for your, your vision and helping to establish this institute. More importantly, to all of your contributions to the field of criminology, to the thousands of students over the years, and for, for helping America become a, a safer place. This brings us to the end of this episode of the Community Safety Webcast. We appreciate all of our listeners, and we hope that you will join us again next time. for listening to Community Safety Web Podcast. We want to thank our colleagues at the FSU College of Criminology and Criminal Justice, Dr. Tom Blomberg, Dr. George Pesta, and Natalie Edwards-Heller for their support and assistance in producing the Community Safety Podcast.